Welcome to the Benefits Executive Roundtable, hosted by Dorothy Koshu, President of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Dorothy is a nationally recognized benefits and compliance consultant and group health broker. Here, you'll listen to industry experts break down the latest news and trends in employee benefits, healthcare reform, regulations and compliance, all designed to empower executive decisions. Welcome everyone to a special edition of our Benefits Executive Roundtable podcast series. This interview is being released in two versions. The original version is for use by my own company and podcast series at Advanced Benefit Consulting. There is also a second version which I have created for use by the California Association of Health Underwriters to share with their members and their clients. This is the original ABC version of this podcast. I'm here with Janet Troutline, the CEO of the National Association of Health Underwriters. Thank you, Janet, for agreeing to be here on my podcast today. Thanks for inviting me. I wanted to talk to the expert because you are indeed the expert of all things health insurance (laughs) and legislative activities related thereof. Um, I wanted, first of all, for you to tell me a little bit about what NAHU is, uh, what the association does for its members and consumers. So the, the National Association of Health Underwriters, which is NAHU um, or NAHU or NAHU, whatever you don't want to call it, is a professional association for health insurance professionals. Uh, we have a lot of different kinds of health insurance professionals. Some of them work with uh, individual consumers. Some of them work with large corporations everything in between, uh, and the, but they all specialize in health insurance or employee benefits or something like that. And what, and what we do for our members is we provide a number of services for them. Probably the chief service that we're known for are advocacy services, mm-hmm. which means that we represent our members in Washington, D.C., and then our state chapters represent them as well in state capitals around the country. We have 210 state and local chapters. Uh, It's one of the things that distinguishes us from other organizations and helps us really represent our members every place they need to be represented. We also have a very extensive professional development Mm -hmm. system which includes uh, compliance training as well as certification programs and uh, an employee benefits designation. So basically, ultimately, the goal of the association that is to make sure that the agents that are members and uh, all the other members, they're more professional in nature and that they have a higher level of education and skills so that they can accommodate their and service their clients better. Yes, and I, and I would say one of the things as we look at what do we advocate for, what do we provide education on, it's not just things that directly affect our members, but also things that affect their clients. Right. And that, that's also one of the things that distinguishes us from some other groups. Right, right. I think the consumerism part of it is what right. I'm most interested in today as well because I want to express to anyone listening that, that NAHU helps not only the, the agents, members that they have, but also obviously the consumer level, and that's really important to all of us. So let's talk a little bit about legislative um, situations here. Before we get into the details of some of the legislative proposals and things like that, Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about terminology because ultimately what I'm hoping for this podcast is that our agent members will share this with their with their employer clients uh, or individuals Um, so I'd like to start off with having you help me summarize the terminology what's the simple breakdown what does some of this stuff mean the glossary of terms so to speak Um, and then we'll talk a little bit about more of the healthcare news and that sort of thing Um, but what is, when someone says, 
universal access to healthcare, what does that mean? Medicare for all, what does that mean? Single payer, what does that mean? What does a public option mean? If you could kind of break these down a little bit for us and tell people the basics on the distinctions between them, because I think a lot of consumers are pretty confused on these things. So uh, we'll start off with universal coverage itself. Okay. Just to distinguish that from universal access to coverage, which I will talk about next. Right. So universal coverage means pretty much that um, all of the people um, in a society are covered by health insurance. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean it's the same plan. It could be different plans for different populations of people. So that means some people could be on plans like Medicaid mm -hmm. uh, or Medi-Cal as it is in California. Um, some could be on Medicare. Some could be on employer-sponsored coverage. Some could be on union-sponsored coverage. Some could be on uh, individual market coverage. Um, and you know, there's a few other categories, but it pretty much means that everyone is covered. And then depending on what country you're talking about, there's more or less involvement in those systems. So in the United States, it's pretty much dominated by the private system, but we have millions and millions of people in our uh, Medicare program. Right. So, it's, um, so that's universal coverage, everyone is covered. Mm -hmm. Universal access to, to coverage means that everyone can be covered or they may choose not. They may select on their own volition not to be covered, mm -hmm. but it means that they could get coverage if they wanted to. They, they're eligible to get it. They, in some situations, some people may still have assistance in paying for it or may not. Depends on the particular system that you're looking at, but it doesn't um, guarantee that everyone is covered. So there may still be some people that kind of sit out of the system and there's um, there, and there may be some penalties or there may be no penalties for it. But it just means they can get it if they want it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's break down a little bit about the single payer and Medicare for all uh, situations and proposals out there and what these all mean. So a single payer proposal may or may not look like any of the proposals that we've seen here in the United States. Single payer really means that even though you might see insurance companies involved, that ultimately the ultimate end payer is the government and at least it's at least partially funded through some sort of taxation um, system. Even if people are paying some premiums, the government is subsidizing what they're paying government is usually in single payer. The government is always involved in negotiating provider payment rates, even when the coverage is delivered through an insurance product. So single payer can look like insurance, and but not really be the type of insurance that we know today. Mm -hmm. um, in um, other types of systems, the government is really controlling everything and insurance companies are not involved in the primary kind of statutory benefits that are required. So think in this situation of Canada or the United Kingdom or a number of countries in Europe that have systems that don't have insurance or these funds that we hear about. They really are, everything is decided by um, the government. And then Medicare for All, is that next? Yes. <laughs> so Medicare for All is What's been proposed, and it's a, that we hear a lot about now uh, for, for the United States, it's very much like the Canadian system 
I guess what I would say about Medicare for All is, to be honest, I really don't like that it's called Medicare for All because I think it's a little bit misleading and confusing mm -hmm. to people. They think it's like our Medicare program today, and it's not. That's what and, the majority is that, that, I, that I'm hearing, that they think it's just like it, Medicare. It's not mm -hmm. like Medicare at all. Everyone in the country would be covered under it, under it and people who um, like their coverage today, whether it's an employer-sponsored plan or the current Medicare program, would not have it. And what's it, different about this proposal is uh, the way it's structured, it's paid for through a system of taxation, so people's taxes would go up a lot, yeah. a lot as well. That's And when I say people, I mean you and I, mm -hmm. as well as employers would pay a lot, a really hefty tax um, because of not providing employer-sponsored coverage anymore. So, And then that money that's collected through taxation would be a part of a global budget that's developed to theoretically pay for coverage in our country. And we, we there are various uh, countries around the world that have a global budgeting process. And I will tell you, it always results in waiting lists. Yeah. It's because the money runs out before the need for services runs out. Yes. So that's just that's just a, a small thing. And by the way, um, some countries that have this kind of system allow for supplemental coverage or coverage on the private side to layer on top of it. The Medicare for All proposal does not permit that. So people would be stuck with this system but not allowed to do anything else. So take what the government gives you and you have no other choices. That, that's right. And so and 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 hope you don't need anything uh, too urgently and be prepared to wait. And by the way, your doctor may not be able to afford to be in business based on the rate that they're paying. Them. Right. They may they may just retire early or do something else or right. I grew up in Michigan uh, on the Canadian border and a lot of my friends growing up, people that I grew up with their families moved to Michigan because someone in their family needed health care and couldn't wait in the Canadian system, you know, the time frame because they thought the condition would get worse or they didn't have the right kind of surgeons or the right kind of procedures. Um, and they didn't want to wait 10 to 15 months for an MRI or something like that. So literally they just took jobs in Michigan and, and crossed over. And um, that's how I grew up seeing that, that the Canadian system Although it sounds great and some people just love it when they need something serious done, it just didn't always work for them. So they would literally relocate across you know, the border into the United States and into Michigan. And, and so, again, I've had some personal experience with those issues. And so I wanted to bring that up, that if this is the Medicare for all system that they're proposing in Washington is similar to the Canadian system, that that's not all, that's not all it's, roses. It's similar, but to be honest with you, it's worse than their system. Okay. Because in their system, uh, the services that are mandated to be covered, that are mandated services, mm -hmm. are two. They're hospital services and physician services. And then everything else is left to the provinces. And and under on those things, you're allowed to, the provinces right. pay them however they pay them, like prescription drugs, for example. And uh, people are allowed to buy supplemental coverage to help pay for them. With the system that's being proposed in the United States, every single thing is a covered item uh -huh. on the federal program. And that's why there's there's no opening for a supplemental coverage unless you want to buy supplemental coverage for cosmetic surgery. Yeah. <laughs> and you know not, so. not a lot of choice, not a lot of not a lot of opportunity to do something else. So talk a little bit about the public options that they're so, talking about. 
there's there's the public options there's public options there's also medicare Mm buy-ins so all of these by the way the proposals that you see in congress they're all called medicare something yeah medicare x medicare e Mm -hmm. medicare buy-in uh and so so i want to distinguish which ones of those have anything to do with medicare yeah only one of them and that's the medicare buy-in which would be for people aged 50 to 64 could buy into our current system. It wouldn't be the one I just described. Right. Now, the problem with that is whether what would happen to people who don't want to go into the buy-in and the way it's um, structured, all the providers would be paid at Medicare rates. Would people have access with you expand Medicare rates to this many more people? Mm-hmm. Um, would, would they actually have access to providers? We've seen a number of reports that providers would be severely impacted by this. I've talked to like five hospital systems now who've told me that they would have to shut down some of their services, particularly in rural areas where they would close some hospitals. Oh, yeah, that's, so, that's, that's an issue, especially if you're, like I said, if you're in a small town, what are you going to do? There's only one hospital facility. There's only and one. And it's going to close. It's going to close, yeah. You're going to drive further and hopefully you will be able to get there in time. So that's an issue. And then it also creates an unlevel playing field with the rest of the market where people may not want to go into this. That's the second problem with the Medicare buy-in. And the third, um, uh, because it's when you have one market where providers are paid at Medicare rates and then the commercial market where they're not allowed to do that, mm-hmm. uh, then you have uh, an unlevel playing field and it kind of pushes out the private coverage so that people may no longer have that option for very long. So, and that's a similar thing that happens with the public option. The issue is the provider payment rate is the biggest mm-hmm. issue, and the market, not just disruption, but um, just really shoving out the private options because it's just not a level playing field. So, those are the biggest problems with those. And then you wonder whether you'll have provider access. And I will say, on one of the public option proposals that out there, it's out there. They anticipated that maybe some providers might not want to participate in their system. And they added a provision that said, well, you will participate in our system, and if you don't, then you will not be able to participate in any part of our Medicare program. Which is <laughs> No pressure. Yeah, so, and that, so you, you know that that would really increase the effect of this unlevel playing field, pushing out any private options. So you wonder whether as you gradually, little by little, push out the private market, at what point there will be no private market left and then you automatically slide into the bigger proposal that I talked about to start with. Yeah. So it's really a dangerous pathway. Yeah, and if given the current situation in Washington, which is quite volatile at the moment, um, what if things were to change? What if we had a Democratic president elected in the next election? Um, most of them are interested in some sort of single-payer or Medicare-for-all type of scenario. Uh, I know you can't, you can't look into a crystal ball and, and predict the future, but the top candidates that are out there right now, um, can you comment on a little bit about what they're looking at, kind of distinguishing one from the other, just maybe the top three or four? So I, you know, I will say for something to pass, it also has to do with who's controlling Congress. Congress, right. But let's, let's leave it on the, the presidents for a moment. I think I want to really divide the candidates into kind of camps. Mm-hmm. And this also kind of fits in with members of Congress. So there are those that kind of consider themselves middle of the road, sort of centrist or 
um, call themselves pragmatic, they mainly will say that they want to improve the Affordable Care Act. Mm -hmm. And so they, uh, they're not Medicare for all advocates. Okay. So they'll, but they will say, say that they want a public option. Every one of them will. And they say that because they look at it and they don't understand markets um, because that's not what they do for a living. They don't right. understand how the insurance markets work and how important it is to have everyone playing by the same rules. They just look at it as another choice. They aren't, they aren't really looking at it as a pathway to single payer, even though it might ultimately be that. They look at it as added, offering another choice for people. So even someone that says that they're an advocate of uh, and just getting making the Affordable Care Act better, mm -hmm. they uh, all of them include that. Every single Democrat in Congress is on one of those bills that I described. Okay, they're on one. Yeah, yeah. and most but the ones that are middle of the road are going to be on the public option. Okay, and it's because they feel like that's you know something that's a part of their identity that they need to do. So, for example, if I look at Joe Biden. Joe Biden is a public option guy. Mm -hmm. And then if you look at um, Bernie Sanders, he's Medicare for all. Right. He's much further to the left. And um, so is um, Elizabeth Warren, very far to the left. She's right. a Medicare for all person. And then you look at uh, Kamala Harris. You know, she's, she's Medicare for all, but she said, well, for a few years, it can be Medicare Advantage and not just this um, more dramatic program. She has to, she faces it in a little bit, but um, but ultimately the but same. That would, but that would mean everybody's on that, right? You know, you would pick one of the, the two things to start with. So, um, <laughs> and I will I will point out that Medicare Advantage that we have today, mm -hmm. um, it looks like insurance. It isn't insurance, but Medicare Advantage is a Medicare program. It is a choice in our government-run Medicare program. It is funded by Part A and Part B premiums. It's it's not uh, the same as a, another private policy. It's a public program policy. So I just that's just yeah. really important people, just because something has private clothes on doesn't mean that it actually is. Right. You know, it, it's all about where the money is coming from and who's paying for it. Yeah. Of course, even if we say the government is paying for it, we have to remind ourselves of who pays the government. Uh huh. Right. So. Exactly. So, can you give us an idea of the kind of financial impact that any of these types of proposals would have on the U.S. economy and taxpayers in general? There's um, there's a lot of discussion about how we would pay for one of these big proposals. Mm -hmm. There's no one is has a good cost <laughs> estimate. The best that we have are a few like really rough estimates have said that even the, the most, if we thought we were going to pay for it, all of our taxes would go up by an average of $24,000 a year. Some people would pay a lot more than that. Yeah. Some people would pay a little bit less if they make less, but that's a lot of money. Yeah. And then it, that doesn't count how much employers would go up. We don't have any good cost estimates. I think there's probably a reason for that. I don't think they want to throw that out there. They don't want people to really understand just how much it costs. I mean, you know that in California here, we had um, single-payer options out there like crazy over the past few years. It's been a serious threat. And the only thing that really slowed it down was that when it came right down to it, the cost. When people started realizing, oh my gosh, there's a huge cost attached to this that we can't afford. 
all of a sudden it quieted down a bit because for a year and a half, two years, as you know, it was, it was uh, quite a fight here in California. We were quite worried about it. And it's not saying that it has gone away. It's just saying that they're just kind of, you know, waiting to see how things happen. And, and uh, I think the governor is trying to, you know, just figure out where, where, his, uh, where its constituents are and where the people in California are feeling, you know, he doesn't want the bad publicity. I don't think that's a personal opinion of mine. Um, but here in California, we, we knew the numbers. I mean, we had predictions on the numbers and they were ridiculous. So I can't even imagine putting that in for, you know, the whole United States. That's yeah, just... The, um, the, uh, one of the things I heard Bernie Sanders say recently is that we can afford to do this because we're going to be paying the providers a lot less. <laughs> and I, it, that makes me think to, um, uh, not necessarily to move off of this issue, but of another issue that we're working on right now, the surprise, surprise building, building issue. Mm -hmm. And we have had, um, and so that, that involves some pay cuts for some providers who are out of network in some of these situations where there are surprise bills, which I can explain more in a moment. But the pushback that we've had from the provider community on this, this relatively small provision right. of su relative surprise billing I can't even imagine the pushback that we would have um, relative to every bit of dollar that they make being paid at Medicare rates, right. really. Right. And, um, and then, like you said, Bernie Sanders is thinking of cutting the Medicare rates even more. So how would they survive? They, um, yeah, they, we, we don't have the same situation here that they have in some other countries. You know, our physicians have to pay for their medical school right. in full, mm -hmm. and it's very expensive. Not to mention all of their insurance uh, their and everything for malpractice. Insurance. Yeah. We don't have the limits on, um, on you know, uh, awards uh, and, uh, that, that, that they have in some other countries. So we're, uh, compared to some other places, we're a little lawsuit crazy here. Yeah. And the, you know, the, the amounts that of judgments that you see sometimes are unbelievably high. And so doctors have to, you know, insure themselves against those types of losses, even if they're good, you know, practitioners, yeah. they still have to do that. And that all factors into what they charge. And there are some limits that there need to be on some of our providers, no doubt. Absolutely. No doubt. But to say that we're going to go from where we are now and then just pay everyone Medicare rates, that is, a little bit um, that's too, too drastic yeah yeah I just I can't see the American public wanting to do this if they really truly understand and I think that's the problem is that they don't really understand they hear the buzz about oh it's free and and all they hear is it's free it's never free there's always a cost to that and um, you know people need to break it down a little bit and that's why I wanted to do this podcast on this topic with you because you are the biggest expert we know um, on especially the single payer you you did I took all those classes and you became such an expert in all the other countries and, and not everyone can say that. I mean, you know more about every country's healthcare system than anyone I've ever known. You probably ever will know. And um, so well, you, you had the, to look and compare and to try to do yeah. it objectively and say, yeah. okay, what's good about their system? What's not good about it? Right. But you know, I think we, you know, we talk about the cost of a system. The cost can come in a lot of different ways. The cost can be a hard dollar cost or the cost can be not being able to get an MRI when it's critical, right. not being able to get that biopsy done when it's critical, not being able, you know, there's a cost to wait. Mm -hmm. And the cost can be your life. Yeah. 
that's that's in my estimation that's prices too high yeah and mine as well well um obviously Nahoo has been doing some research on these types of things and you guys are very involved in I should say you guys I'm a member of Nahoo as well um, but yes Nahoo has has been paying attention to what consumers want and you guys have done surveys you've done all sorts of research what is what is the overall view of the public from your opinion and Nahoo uh, feel about all of these things and what do they think is most important in general relative to the single payer right, right relative to single payer I, yeah. you know I think that the mo most of the public when you look at polls uh, they really prefer just to make some improvements to the system that we have mm -hmm. and I think that's where most of our, our members are as well they think look we've made some improvements along the way since the law was passed there are some more things that need to be done to make it work a little bit better. There's some things that we could do outside of kind of the framework that exists today that would address in constructive ways the cost of care mm -hmm. and not just slicing it saying and saying to our providers, take it or leave it. Yeah. And we, you know, I think that we need to do some of those things. And I think that's where most of our members are. They just want to make some changes to what we have. Um, you know, some some of our members don't want to make any changes to what we have. Right, of course. And, you know, and they, <laughs> people are they, against change. Period. You know, that that, they, that any yeah. change is, is difficult, and I think they say that because as they talk to their um, clients, their clients are just tired of constant change, and they they want a little predictability. Mm -hmm. Predictability and stability. Mm -hmm. They want to be able to forecast their prices in the future and set their budgets accordingly and not set their budgets and have them go up 34% next year because of something unexpected. Yes. So, yeah, I agree with you 100%. So if we were to go towards some sort of single-payer system in this country, which type of system, in your opinion, would still allow for some continuations of private, of private plans? Well, you know, I, I, I don't want to... To, to say anything that would make it sound like I think we should do any of them. Okay. But if you, I, I agree with you so, as well. <laughs> so so what I, when I say this, I'm saying I'm going to pick the, you know, the least undesirable. Right. And, you know, the, if we looked at a system, for example, like they have in France, Germany, the Netherlands, those systems are all kind of insurance-based. Not mm -hmm. exactly what we have here. I think I would kind of take that idea but really retain our employer-based system. Right. Because I think that's one of the things that's unique and good about the United States, and that our employers not only can offer coverage to employees, but uh, they can really look at who their employees are and offer the kind of coverage that's best for them, which is one of the things that even in insurance-based systems in Europe, um, if employers offer anything, it's usually supplemental coverage. Right or it's something that's really cookie cutter and it's not really designed to meet the needs of a particular population. And I think we have the ability because of our size and the way, you know, our history of the way we're structured now to continue to do that. And that's good. That's, so I think we could take some ideas, they've got some good ideas about um, how they protect against excess risk, mm -hmm. particularly in the Netherlands, that are really good ideas. And I think we need to have enough you know, ability to adjust risks so that the, there's plenty of competition in the, the market. Um, I do think we will have to look at the way we pay for medical services mm -hmm. and have, you know, some limits on some things. Yeah. And that, that's just, 
I think that's coming whether no matter what we call it. We have to have some limits because it can't keep going up like this. There is a limit to how much people can pay. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and I agree with you, the strength of the United States system historically has been the employer-based system. And I think one of the things I'd like to throw out there is for anyone that's listening is that when you are talking you know, to your legislators, you want to share with them the fact that the employer-based system has been working and working very well for all these years. So why take the best system in the world and destroy it for something that's going to cost more and probably provide you know, less services to people, more wait times and that sort of thing. So that's just kind of the summary that I'd like to throw out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure that there's one or two important things that you'd want people to take away from this and what, what would those be? What would the most important things that you'd want people to take from this? I, I guess I would say that I, I want them to not just sit back and wait for other people to be involved. If, if I would like for people to really understand that they can reach out to their member of Congress they can reach out to their state legislators and that they actually will listen to them and they actually do want to hear from them. And absent them hearing from them, mm-hmm. they're going to do whatever they think is best, which may or may not be the best thing. <laughs> so they at least give your input. Here's what I'm experiencing here. And they do really respond when they, when they hear from people. So I think just be a little bit more aware. And then I, the other thing I would just say is there are some other issues going on, but just as a, um, a person out there, if you're listening to the news, don't just listen to one source. Whatever, however you kind of um, categorize yourself, if you're a Republican or you're a Democrat or you're in the middle, you know, don't just listen to one television right. station. Look at some online sources of news as well. Listen to some the opposite. Don't just assume that the other side is evil. You know, they're they're just because you can learn a lot by just listening to what other people have to say. Yeah. And if you can look at them and think about, you know, why do they think that? And and understand that there may be some truth into what they're saying and find the parts of truth that there are. You can mesh them with yours and then you're that much closer to what an actual solution could be because we have to consider everyone's ideas in this country. We're lucky that we can do that. That we don't have to have everything you know, set out by the government. We have a voice here, mm-hmm. but we all have a voice, not just the voices that sound like ours. It's the ones that the other people have too. And there's a little element of something that's useful in almost anyone's idea. So you can just find something where you can find common ground and uh, then you'll be a much more informed person and you'll be much more actively um, engaged in what will be a good final solution. Very, very good, very good words. I, I appreciate that. So lastly, before we wrap up here, um, what would you tell employers about the importance of their brokers and consultants being members and active in, in associations like NAHU? I would tell you that uh, you need to make sure that your <laughs> broker is a member of NAHU. Or, and we don't really have too many competitors, competitors that, are, right. that are just like us because of our state presence and so forth because for them to have the type of information that they are gonna get Mm -hmm. from this type of an organization will factor greatly in the types of recommendations they make in their ability to forecast what's coming down the road. And a professional organization just really puts your 
the, the field of knowledge that your broker has in a different place. Uh, it, it just ranges from you know educational things to kind of insider knowledge about what's going on on the legislator front, like legislative front. And, and just know that when your broker in, uh, is involved with an organization like ours, that we are advocating not just for them, but for you, their clients. Right. Because we want you to be there, the clients to be their clients. Right. So I, you know, I think it's just really, really important for, for a broker to go to the professional trouble to be a part of an organization, and it will, it will benefit them greatly, and it will benefit the employer greatly as well. Great thoughts. Great closing thoughts. I appreciate that. Yes. So make sure your agent is a member of NAHU. That's, right. that's the biggest takeaway they should have. All right. Thank you very much for your time, Janet. I really, truly appreciate it. Thanks, Dorothy. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for compliance tips, cost containment ideas, new trends, and decision-making tools. This podcast is produced by Advanced Benefit Consulting, Anaheim, California. All views expressed are those of the host or interviewees and not necessarily those of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Information contained herein should not be construed as legal advice. We always recommend that you consult with your legal counsel as situations do vary. Ms. Koshu can be reached at 714-693-9754, extension 3. Toll free at 866-658-3835. Or visit our website at advancedbenefitconsulting.com.